Those who are going to be confirmed today, and maybe all of you know, that traditionally Christians have said there are seven sacraments. But in the last few decades, some theologians have argued that really there should just be six, not seven, because confirmation really belongs to the initiation rite of baptism. So in, in the early church, a bit of history kind of makes this clear. You can see why they're making that case. So in the, in the earliest days of Christianity, when it came time for baptism, for initiation into the church, adults were baptized, usually nude, in a large pool. I have your attention now. <laughs> and then clothed in pure white, like these albs that we're wearing now. In fact, this is one of the roots of this practice. Clothed in white robes, which of course is language you'll recognize from Scripture, and then anointed with oil by the bishop, with the laying on of hands and the invocation of the Spirit, for the Spirit to come and empower them with all of the gifts of the Spirit, the seven gifts that are listed in Isaiah 11. And then they came directly to the table. So all in kind of one swoop, you come into the pool, renouncing the devil, washed of your sins, out of the pool, anointed with oil, filled with the Spirit to the table, receiving the body and blood of Christ. But over time, there became too many baptisms and too few bishops. And one of the things that happened, just happened to happen, is that people would be baptized before they could be confirmed, before the bishop could come and lay hands on them with the anointing of oil and the invocation of the Spirit. And eventually that kind of hardened into two separate sacraments. So by the time we get to the Middle Ages, you have this list of seven very clearly distinguishing baptism, which is the washing away of sins and the renouncing of the devil, from confirmation, which is, at this point, by the Middle Ages, understood as the sacrament of perfection. Not in the sense that you were sinless, but in the sense that you were mature. You were ready for the Christian life. One, one of my favorite aspects of medieval practice of confirmation is that the bishop would not only anoint you with oil, he would gently slap you which I'm still debating whether or not I'll do that this morning. Uh, maybe I'll vote. We'll take a vote. If you, if, if you want the medieval version, then it will involve a gentle slap. Can you imagine if Bishop Ed had been allowed to oh, no. practice this? If he had got to determine what counts as gentle. It actually is rooted, though, in the practice of knighting. Of course, when we think of someone being knighted, we see the image of the queen or the king using the sword to dub them, touching their shoulders. But the more ancient practice that was common in the Middle Ages was, again, to slap the knight as a sign of their readiness to suffer without retaliation. They could handle the pain. They could turn the other cheek. And so that right worked into confirmation so that when those who were being confirmed were slapped, again, gently, they were being reminded that they would suffer for Christ and that the Spirit was giving them the resilience not to retaliate, not to respond. It's beautiful, really. Not, still not sure if I will do it, but it's a, beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful practice. The Reformers, of course, they aren't so sure that confirmation has biblical basis. And so even though some Reformed traditions continued to practice it, it wasn't regarded as properly a sacrament. There were just two sacraments now, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because these two are directly commanded by Jesus. And confirmation falls 
either all away altogether or becomes a practice of the church that's not actually a sacrament. The churches that I grew up in, the free churches, the low church, kind of non-denominational Pentecostalism that shaped me, we had actually substituted a similar practice. It had nothing to do with the bishop. It had nothing to do with ritual or liturgy at all. But it, we called it rededicating our hearts to God. And almost every revival, which were for, these were frequent events for us, you were rededicating your heart to God, which meant you got rebaptized. Liturgically, traditionally, you don't rebaptize. You, you're baptized once. Whenever you happen to be baptized as an infant, as an adult, that is your baptism. You don't need another one. But in the churches I grew up in, you should get baptized every time you rededicate your life to God. And so I've been baptized hundreds of times, I'm sure, right? Probably more than any other one person on the earth. I'm not, I hope at some point one of those took, right? That, it counted. Right? Then Robert Jensen, who was a Lutheran ecumenical theologian, one of my theological mentors, he was one of those theologians arguing that there should be six sacraments, not seven. And this was his reasoning, that there's no theological excuse, those are his exact words, for distinguishing the washing of your sins from the receiving of the Spirit. Because in the story of Jesus, of course, and in the story of Paul and Peter and the, the, the apostles, all of that is believed to happen at once. When Jesus comes up out of the water, he's immediately filled with the Spirit. So that in baptism, the receiving of the Spirit and the washing of your sins and the renunciation of the devil, that's all one event. And so Jens made the argument, there should be six sacraments Everyone should, when, when they're baptized, whether as infants or adults or as children, whenever they're baptized, they should immediately be anointed with oil. The Spirit should be, should be invoked over them, and they should move forward knowing that they have received the Spirit. I, I can see his reasoning, but I, I actually think there's a lot of wisdom to making that distinction. Of course, from God's side, there is only one action. God is always being fully God. God doesn't sometimes show up and really do what God can do and the rest of the time kind of hang back. God is always being God. God is always doing all that God can do. So from God's side, there's always one action and it's always full. But our lives are broken up by time and by space. We have different seasons. We have different moments. And so God's work in our lives does seem episodic. From God's side, there's no stopping and starting. There's no beginning and ending. There's just the flow of God to us. But from our side, we do, we are able to point to times in which it seems like God is breaking through. This is when God is acting. Well, God is always acting, but I'm not always experiencing the action. I'm not always aware, and aware of and attuned to that action. So I think this distinction between baptism and confirmation helps us realize that it's, it's perfectly acceptable for God's work in our lives to show up at different moments, to come through, knowing again, from God's side, it's always one, but from our side, it's many. We act this out liturgically again and again. We've done it this morning in which we have a leader, the one voice that's calling for our response as the many. That's how we experience God's life. And I think, in spite of my respect for Jensen, there's a reason we have seven sacraments and not six. And I like to think of the sacrament of confirmation as the sacrament of wholeheartedness. The sacrament of wholeheartedness. 
not Jensen, thankfully, but there, there was a theologian who said the sacrament of confirmation is a practice in search of a theology. It's a practice in search of a theology. But I think the theology of confirmation is that this is the grace that is given to you so that you can love God with all of your heart. You can love God wholeheartedly. You receive the seven gifts of the Spirit, the full array of the gifts of the Spirit, so that you can, with the fullness of your life, love God fully. The sacrament of wholeheartedness. And the scriptures we heard today that were read for us, I think testify to why we need a sacrament of wholeheartedness. In the Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 18, we hear about the, the ways in which it's possible to lose heart. You know, we have that phrase in English, to lose heart, to be disheartened, for our hearts to faint. And we need the sacrament of wholeheartedness so that we do not lose heart, so that we are not disheartened. When we are disheartened, we become afraid. We're afraid of everything, even God. In the passage we heard, Deuteronomy 18, what did the people say to Moses? We cannot bear this voice anymore. We cannot stand to see the fire, this holy fire, anymore. So you go for us into the presence. You stand before God face to face and let us hold some distance. That's what it sounds like when you've lost heart, when you're disheartened. You, you aren't confident to stand before God because you're afraid of God. And here's, here's the response from God to Moses. This is good. Not that your disheartenedness is good, but that God recognizes their honesty as good. Do you hear the difference? God is not saying to Moses, it's good that they're afraid of me. He is saying, it's good that they know that they are. It's good that they can say that they are. And so that now that they've named it, they've confessed it, I'm going to bring prophet, a prophet who can draw them into the intimacy and friendship I mean for them. God does not want you to be afraid of him, but you will be. Because to be human, I mean, there's a reason that babies are born crying. We know from before we know that there are reasons to be afraid. We are vulnerable creatures, and we can sense that vulnerability in our bones. We have reasons to be afraid. And so God says, it's good for you to know that vulnerability. You are a vulnerable creature. And yet he's not going to leave you in that vulnerability. He's going to grace you again and again and again so that you can not be afraid of him, not be afraid of everything. You can live wholeheartedly. The New Testament reading for today, 1 Corinthians 8, warns us about something that is altogether different and not at all good. And that is what happens when we become heartless or big-headed, when we're all head and no heart. You remember the way Paul said it, knowledge puffs up, you get big-headed, but love builds. And I'm sure there's no one here who suffered with this, but you probably know someone, again, not in the room, who's had this problem of becoming so big-headed they're heartless. And in that case, you're not afraid of anything, but people are afraid of you. I mean, not you, but whoever it is that has that problem. And worse, you make people afraid of God. Think, think about what the damage 
would be, the damage is, when we are living in such a way that we are making others afraid of God, afraid to pray, afraid to draw near, when we're reinforcing their worst fears. Again, all of us are vulnerable. So when people become big-headed, and again, it's none of us, but when those people become big-headed and they become heartless, they are stirring up in us that natural fear that God is trying to heal. And this is why Paul says, if you think you know, you don't know anything at all. What matters is that you love God in such a way that you are known by God. And this, this is the goal. And, and Paul is, by the way, not talking about what we call secular education. Right? I, I grew up, again, in churches that were so convinced that if you went to cemetery, that was their word for seminary, you would lose your faith. And they, they were terrified of schooling. They were terrified of it. They were terrified that learning would quench your burning. That's how they would put it. They wanted you to be on fire for God, and they were, they were terrified that if you thought about anything at all, it would quench you. So they thought if you could be little-headed, you would be big-hearted. But being stupid and big-hearted <laughs> is not what we're called to. Right? Jesus didn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, but not at all with your mind. Right? At least if he did, that's not the way it came to us in the Gospels. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind. So the goal is not to be big-headed or headless. The goal is not to be stupid and compassionate. The goal is to be wise where we integrate head and heart. We integrate head and heart. In fact, in the tradition, the monastics talk about prayer as the act of bringing the head down into the heart in prayer. Standing before God and bringing your thoughts down into your heart in the presence of the heart of God so that you have the mind of Christ. So we need a sacrament of wholeheartedness so that we're not afraid of God and so that we don't make people afraid of us and afraid of God. But worst of all, there is the condition of having our hearts defiled. We heard this in the gospel today. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. I, I, never, I always take time to point out that if Jesus needed to go to synagogue, we probably need to go to church. Pretty good rule, right? If Jesus thought, hey, I, I should probably get to synagogue, it's time. We should pick that up. Of course, again, this applies only to people who are not here. <laughs> I'll trust you to communicate that message to them. Send a text right now if you'd like. Jesus is in the synagogue, and this, this man speaks up. Not, not the man exactly, but a, the spirit in the man speaks up. And he's, it's identified, the spirit that's speaking through the mouth of this man, it's identified as an unclean spirit, an impure spirit, as a spirit that has defiled this man's heart so that this man's no longer speaking with his own voice. We experience this sometimes in life in which we don't feel like ourselves. You've ever had those moments? You hear yourself saying something, and maybe someone who loves you very compassionately responds with, that doesn't sound like you. Are, are you okay? Or people who might not be quite so generous can react more to, to us being ugly. What, what are you doing? Who are you? What, what are you saying? 
All, all of those experiences point to the ways in which our hearts, because of what we suffer, our hearts can be defiled or darkened. And in this case, it's not just that we're afraid of God, and it's not just that we're making other people afraid of us. We are afraid of ourselves. And there is nothing worse than being afraid of yourself. There's nothing worse than being so afraid to be yourself that you can't trust anything that rises up in your heart. You're afraid to love or be loved. You're afraid to be present and you're afraid to be absent. You're afraid to speak up and you're afraid not to say anything. And I'm sure, even though none of what I've said to this point applies to anyone in the room, now we're getting close to something somebody in the room feels. I feel it. I know what it is to be afraid of myself. I know what it is to feel my own shadow lurking. And to not know how to be wholehearted with my kids, with my wife, with the churches that I serve, with my students, with God. That there are times in which I'm afraid to say, what I really want to say to my neighbor and to God. Recently, I, I kind of stumbled into this awareness that there's a real difference between praying the prayers I think I'm supposed to pray and praying the prayers that my heart wants to pray. Pr letting myself pray the prayer my heart wants to pray. And there's nothing, again, nothing that's more dehumanizing than having a heart defiled and darkened by what's been done to us so that we can't be ourselves. We are all sinners. We know that if you've been in church for more than a few minutes, you've been reminded of it. We are sinners. But we are sinners because we are first sinned against. Long before you did anything wrong to anyone, long before you broke any laws, long before you did anything wicked, you had already been sinned against. And it's this wound that Jesus wants to heal. And in the sacrament of wholeheartedness, what you're being given is healing not only from your fear of God and not only from the big-headedness that makes others afraid of you, but from your fear of yourself that keeps you from being present. This morning while we were getting ready, Julie had the television on, and there was an interview with Steve Leader, who's a rabbi in Los Angeles, a Reformed rabbi in Los Angeles. Well-known, and had been a rabbi for decades at this point. And he was relating the story of what happened to him when his own father died. And he said in this interview that at this point in his, his work, in his life, he had been present for thousands of people as a rabbi when they had lost someone they loved. This morning, he's the one who's lost someone dear. And so his father is there. His family is with him. And the young rabbi who's going to be officiating steps into the room. And Rabbi Leader said in the interview, I realized instantly that I knew what he, the young rabbi, felt like being in this situation. But I didn't know what I felt like I was cut off from my own grief because I had performed this role of being present to others' griefs for so long. I didn't know how to be present to my own yet. That's wholeheartedness. Being able to be present to your own grief, not just the grief of others, to your own joy, not just the joy of others, 
Because when you're able to be present to your own grief and your own joy, you can be present to your neighbors and to God's. And this, this is the goal. So last word. St. Augustine, long, long ago, made a distinction between believing God, believing in God, and believing into God. This is the way he described it. Believing God means you take God at his word. If God says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Bumper sticker. Right? I'm sure St. Augustine had a bumper sticker that said something quite like that. In Latin, of course, but something quite like that. Believing God just means you trust him. You trust his word. If he says something, he's going to do it. And then there's believing in God. And this is the way we still think primarily about faith. Believing that God exists and that God is the only God that exists. But the most important sense, Augustine said, of believing God is not believing him in the sense of just taking him at his word and not believing that he exists, although that's important too, of course. But it's actually believing in such a way that your life goes into God's life. You're believing into God so that God is happening in you as you believe. And what's going to happen this morning, believe it or not, is as we pray together, as we extend our grace to these who are going to be confirmed, they are going to be believing into God. Not just me affirming their faith and you affirming their faith, but God firming up the faith that he has gifted to them so that they can live with all of us wholeheartedly. And that is an incredible grace. And it's a joy to get to be witness to it. Amen?